Tonight's scripture reading comes from Galatians chapter 5, verses 25. Verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, as Galatians uh, comes to an end, along with summer, I wanted to... Uh, just stop a moment and go back and look at verse 25 of chapter 5, which we covered so briefly last week, because I think it is uh, perhaps one of the clearest summaries of the view of the Christian life in the New Testament. And I didn't feel we really had time to dig into it last week the way that I hoped that we would. Um, I think we're going to finish up by Labor Day. Uh, Spencer's going to teach next week on John 17, very interested in that. I asked him to do that one. I wanted to spend some time preparing for a fall series we're thinking about for the Trinity. But I also have been watching, there's a lot of spirit energy going on in Park Ridge right now. And uh, Spencer is right in the middle of it. And uh, I thought it would be a good time to hear the word preached out of uh, whatever's going on there. And then I think in the following two weeks... uh, uh, on the 25th, we'll probably cover 6, verses 1 to 10. And then on uh, Labor Day, uh, Jesse and I will study uh, the benediction in uh, verses 11 to 18, assuming uh, we're the only ones here. But hopefully there will be a few of us that will show up on Labor Day. <laughs> so let's, let's go back to uh, chapter 5, verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. It's a command, uh, consists of two parts. The first part reminds us of who we are. The second part reminds us how we should live because of who we are. Let's look at the first half of the command. If we live by the Spirit. Many times uh, the Greek word for if carries the meaning of since, and that is probably what's going on here. Uh, We use it this way too. If you're in New York City, you might say, uh, well, if we're, in, if we're in New York, let's go see a play. And what you mean is, since this is where we are, let's act accordingly. And that's the use of the word here. Paul is saying, since something fundamental and vital has changed about us, since this is true about us now in a new way, let's live accordingly. Well, thank you very much. Got a little frog in my throat this, tonight. Thank you so much. It's water, it's not a gin and tonic, just wanted to... <laughs> it's water, thank you. Now, the verb live is in the present active tense. That means Paul's talking about an ongoing, unceasing action, continuous. And the phrase, by the Spirit, is one simple word in the Greek in the dative case. It explains the means by which the Christian now lives. So you put that together, he's saying, since this is true about you, since you live in an ongoing, unceasing, moment-by-moment, continual relationship with the Holy Spirit, since He is the source of your life, since He is the energy of your life, since He is the director of your life, since you live in every way, in and by and through His power and presence, live accordingly. Now, Let's step back for a minute and remember all we've covered in Galatians this summer and see why he's saying this at this point in the letter to the Galatians. 
Uh, if you've been with us, you'll remember that these churches had been planted in these uh, cell house churches in a mountainous region of what we'd call Turkey today. And they began with a very pure gospel of grace that were made right with God on the basis of faith, uh, that there's nothing we can do to add to our salvation. But some well-meaning teachers came in and began adding to the gospel. And we hear what they were doing in Acts 15. Uh, they were saying, some, oh, some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers that unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So this was what was happening. It was the cause of the first great ecumenical council in the early church. As we've said, there are, there are at least seven great ecumenical councils where the early church hammered out her doctrine. This was the first one. It was on the issue of whether or not faith in Christ alone was enough to save you. And a very significant group said, no, it's not. You need faith plus keeping the law of Moses. Now, One of the things that I hope we've learned this summer is that that was not just an ancient problem. This this false gospel of Jesus plus, this idea that, yes, faith matters, yes, I believe in the cross, but I must contribute something to be right with God, is part of our fallenness. It has stained all of us that our ego somehow resists the idea that there is nothing I can contribute to God's love for me, and, and we continually, albeit at a subconscious level, are adding things to the gospel, basing our fellowship with God on things that we do or do not do. And I've talked with a number of you, and I know this has been true for me, I've been stunned and humbled and convicted at how deep the stain of legalism has penetrated uh, my life. And some of you have shared a similar experience. And I'll just tell one little story to illustrate that, and you might think of what this would look like in your own life. But for a couple of years now, I've been trying to practice Sabbath. And on Thursdays is supposedly my Sabbath day. What I found, though, is the kind of blissful, peaceful, stress-free Sabbath that all the writers talk about has uh, not been what I've been able to achieve. Um, last Thursday was a good example. I got up early and I took a long swim. And, and a voice in my head said, you really should be praying first. But the reality is that the old, poop pe- the old, people, the old people at the Y, hog the pool after 8.30. And if I want to swim, i got to get there before the retirees get there. So, <laughs> so I get home from my swim feeling guilty that I didn't pray first, and I was going to make a quick trip to the mechanic shop and then come home and pray because Sandy and Ashton were going up to D.C. to get Sajin from her internship. Well, guess what happens? Of course, uh, it's much more worse than we thought, and I spent all morning on the phone. And the voice in my head says, you shouldn't be fixing your car on the Sabbath. Well, finally, in between trying to pray in between phone calls, I finally gave up, and I started to mow the lawn. Now, I started to mow the lawn because I had a wedding to prepare for on Saturday, and I knew I couldn't do it then, and a voice in my head said, you shouldn't be cutting the lawn on the Sabbath. Well, then I went to a wonderful party thrown by the Branson small group for our swim team, had a total blast, came home, checked my iPhone. And on my iPhone, a guy from Pittsburgh, a radio guy, says, hey, just read your article, we want to interview tomorrow. I said, well, that's great. I want to get the story out. So I dialogue with him, get into my email, spend an hour on email. A voice says, you shouldn't be checking your email on the 7th. By 9, I sit down, I have a prayer time, 
but I'm so tired I don't connect at all. A voice in my head says, you stink. (laughs) That was the worst excuse of a Sabbath ever. Now, I do need to be more disciplined on my Sabbath. But I don't think that that was the voice of the Holy Spirit. I think it was the demonic voice of legalism shooting on me. You should, you should, you should, you should, you should. Now, why is it so hard to live in pure grace? Why do these voices persist? Why is legalism so subtle and toxic? Well, this summer we've seen, and uh, when we study Galatians 4, verse 3, that there, uh, there are the stoichia, the, the spiritual forces of darkness that work against the people of God. And one of the ways they do it is through legalism that shuts down the people of God and creates division among them. So before we end Galatians, maybe one of the things you could ask is, what are the, the voices in your head that tell you, you should, you should, you should, you should, you should. You ought, you ought, you ought, you ought. A godly mother would. A godly dad does. A godly single should be. Brennan Manning, and this, this it borders on profanity, but I think it makes a point, and so uh, forgive me. Uh, Brennan Manning, the wonderful writer, uh, had a sign in his office, and you've probably heard of this, but it, it said, don't should on me. And every time you would come in, uh, you would see that. And I think it's a profound statement, because that is the voice of legalism. That's not the voice of the Spirit. So, when Paul says, since we live by the Spirit, he means... Since we have rejected the twisted gospel of Jesus plus, since we have abandoned trying to live for God in our own effort, since we've forsaken all attempts to make life work by rule keeping, since we've stopped treating God like a magical genie who grants wishes when we jump through hoops, since we have been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me, since we who have been led by the Spirit are no longer under the love, uh, under the law, since those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires, since we are spirit people, let us walk by the Spirit. Now let's look at the second half. As we said briefly last week, the Greek word for walk uh, is not the normal word for walk. It's not the wor- word used in verse 16. Uh, it has more the idea of keeping in step with. It's used in secular Greek to describe a soldier getting in line with a marching army. It's used in secular Greek of being in agreement with someone. In the New Testament, it's used in Romans 4.12. Paul speaks of those who, quote, walk in the footsteps of Abraham. Now, why is Paul using this word to describe life in the Spirit? Well, he's emphasizing an important dimension of life in the Spirit, that it's more than passive trust. It is actively following the path laid out by the Spirit. Living in the Spirit is getting in line with the Spirit's work. It's it's keeping in step with the Spirit. Now, I want to use a couple of illustrations from uh, the church's teachers and then one from Scripture to help us think through what this may mean to keep in step with the Spirit, since we are spirit people. The first one comes from the 6th century. Uh, One of the, the greatest doctrinal challenges the early church had is was figuring out how to talk about the Trinity. 
And they nailed it down in the 4th century. It took 70 years. And it took them until the 6th century to really get language wrapped around it. Well, one of the words that the church fathers used to describe the Trinity was perichoresis, which comes from a Greek word from which we get choreography, which means to dance. And one of the ways they described the Trinity was as living in a perichoretic dance. In other words, that the Trinity is a community that dances eternally. And I, and I, I love that image of the way the Trinity moves in and out and is continually moving and, and dancing. Now, in that, that crazy little wonderful uh, odd book, The Shack, the character Sarayu, however you say it, the Holy Spirit tells Mac, he's speaking for God, and I love this little paragraph. He says, or she says, or whatever gender uh, the Holy Spirit is, I am a verb, I am that I am that I am. I will be who I will be, but I'm a verb. I'm alive, dynamic, ever active and moving. I'm a being verb. I'm more attuned to verbs than nouns. Verbs such as confessing, repenting, living, loving, responding, growing, reaping, changing, sowing, running, dancing, singing, things like that. Humans have a knack for taking a verb that is alive and full of grace and turning it into a dead noun or principle that reeks of rules. Then something growing and alive dies. I love that. And if we do a series on the Trinity, you might read the shack, not as a systematic theology, um, but, but believe me, it's not a systematic theology. <laughs> uh, but it's a fascinating look at God as a verb. God is a, an active, dancing community. So the church fathers described this verb-like reality of God when they called God the dance of the Trinity. So one way we can think of keeping in step with the Spirit as being invited to dance being invited to dance with the Holy Spirit, to dance with the Trinity, of being swept into this wonderful dance. Now, I don't know how to dance. I have some children that are beautiful dancers. My daughter, Sajin, is uh, majoring in dance at George Mason. She's majoring in modern dance. And uh, she'll be a senior this fall. And, and as, uh, she started dancing at three. So twice a year, at least once a year, I've sat through eight-hour dance recitals uh, maybe there were two, but they, sometimes they felt like eight hours. And I noticed that there are kind of two kinds of dance. There's the dance of the little ones, where they put them in bumblebee suits. And they stand there, and they just sort of shake their little bumblebee outfit. And all the parents are crying and taking pictures. And now, I've seen that for 20 years, folks. I've seen all the bumblebees uh, that I ever want to see until your kids start going, and I'll start going to watch them again. And I'll be crying like the rest of them. Now, my daughter's senior year in high school, she performed a modern dance at the Bijou. And it was one of the most powerful, unsettling, wild performances that I've ever seen. I was very proud of her skill, but I was moved by just the wild intensity of my daughter as she moved about the stage And I never knew where she was going until she got there. And whenever she got there, it was obvious that that was where she should be going. And I thought, I think that is more the kind of dance of the Holy Spirit. This this wild, passionate, intense, frightening, terrifying, bold 
movement across the stage. And so what God, I think, is saying is, come join that dance. He's, he's coming to you. If, if you're like me, when I started going in dances in high school, I usually went alone. <laughs> and I would sit by the side. And uh, occasionally, uh, you know, like a teacher would come and ask me to <laughs> dance or something like that. And so you might think of yourself as standing on the side of the dance floor, and, and the Holy Spirit just, just whooshes across the floor and says, come dance with me. That's the gospel, by the way. Now, what do you say? Oh, I, I don't know how to dance. Uh, oh, no, I, I, you're too good for me. I'll sit this one out. See, I think that's what the Holy Spirit's saying to all of us. Come dance with me. Let's try to say yes. Well, now, this is a second illustration that Suzanne Hassel introduced me to. And she gave me a medallion from a monastery that is built around this principle. And it's that the Holy Spirit is a wild goose. And a friend introduced me to this book by Mark Batterson called The Wild Goose Chase. And the introduction goes like this. Celtic Christians had a name for the Holy Spirit. Uh, they called him the Wild Goose. The name hints at mystery. Much like a wild goose, the Spirit of God cannot be tracked or tamed. An element of danger and air of unpredictability surround him. And while the name may sound a little sacrilegious, I cannot think of a better description of what it's like to follow the Spirit through life. I think the Celtic Christians were on to something. Most of us will have no idea where we're going most of the time. And I know that's unsettling. But circumstantial uncertainty also goes by another name, adventure. <laughs> and then he has this fascinating discussion about boredom. He quotes Kierkegaard who says that boredom is the root of all evil. And he says that spiritual boredom may be a sign you've stopped following the wild goose. Now, uh, a brief ad from the sponsor. Um, sometimes boredom is okay, right? We don't always want to be looking for the next new thing. Sometimes you just get up and be faithful. But the Christian life overall shouldn't be boring. If we're trying to follow the wild goose, it should be a wild goose chase taking us places that we don't know where it's going. Now, there's a third image of life in the Spirit that comes from the teaching of our Lord, and it's in John 3, that conversation with Nicodemus. And he says, Unless a person's born of water and the Spirit, he can't enter the kingdom. What's born of flesh is flesh. What's born of the Spirit is spirit. Don't be amazed that I said you must be born from above. The wind blows wherever it will. And you'll hear the sound it makes, but you won't know where it's coming from. So is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. And so here's the third illustration. We've talked about dancing, joining the dance. We've talked about um, the wild goose chase. And the Lord says, being in the Spirit is like being blown about by a wind that you can't control. Now, I think one of the reasons we don't get this is because of the way we sail today. The way we sail today is you get a little Evinrude motor and you put it on the back of the sailboat. And then you get a little sailing outfit and you, get, and you sit there with your Evinrude and you put, put, put out of the harbor and then you go out a little bit and if the wind's blowing, you might put the sail up. If it's not blowing, you put the Evinrude on and you put around a little bit. Then you go back into the harbor in your little sailor outfit and you go home. 
Well, you didn't sail that way in the ancient world. You were totally at the mercy of the wind. And and the wind could be a gentle, refreshing breeze. It could be a terrifying, life-defying power that whips everything around you into a cauldron of, of frenzied water. That's what wind would have meant to the ancients. So life in the Spirit is more like ancient sailing. It's more terrifying. It's more risky. There may be more wrecks. But I think it's probably more fun than putting around in the harbor in your boating suit. It's more of an adventure. And I think that's the hope of the gospel, that Christ has set us free from the law, and He's invited us to join the dance of the Trinity, to go on a wild goose chase, to quit putting around the harbor, and trust the wind. Now let me try to just work this out a little bit as we close. Now let's imagine that I, I think about my Sabbath day differently. You see, the problem with the way I've approached Sabbath is I've just added, I've made it a law. I've said, look, this is the rule. There are certain things that I need to do on Sabbath to be close to God. Have a long quiet time, not do email, yada, yada, yada. And when I don't keep the rule, I'll become frustrated and feel ashamed. Now, what would have happened if I'd begun my Sabbath like this? Lord, I've carved out this whole day for you. I'm I'm open to wherever you want to blow me today, wherever you want to take me, wherever you want to send me today. And I'm going to see anything that comes my way today, not as an obstacle to me keeping Sabbath, but as an invitation to an adventure with you. See how differently that would have framed the day? Uh, Moving to something, Amy said, someone asked me if I was glad that swimming was over. And and, and the truth is, no, I'm not. There are uh, six or eight kids who who live in a high-risk situation, and I I just can't quit thinking about them. As Amy said, we're trying to come together and figure out how to walk with them a little bit more. Now, my tendency and I started to do this as soon as the swim team ended, was to cobble together a plan to solve the problem. And I've been in this community 26 years now. I have a lot of friends. I have a lot of resources. I know a lot of people. And and I can put together plans. But because we're going through this together, and as we've been praying and talking about it, the Holy Spirit is saying, why don't you let me lead the dance? Yeah, I know your heart breaks for these little kids, but I wonder what would happen if if you saw this as an invitation to follow the wild goose. Where could this thing go if you just followed me into a mystery? I got a little taste of what that looks like this week. Um, One of the moms on the team is, is a real hero to me. Her name's Marquisa. She does work as a waitress and a house cleaner. And she loves her two boys. She wants, uh, wants them both to, to take piano lessons and swim. So she works like crazy. Sometimes she adds a third job. And a couple weeks ago, she misses a meet. And I, and I talked to her. And I said, well, where, where were you guys? Because she's always there. And she said, well, my car broke down. And I don't have the money to fix it. And so I talked to a friend about it. The friend gave a gift of about $750. She takes it to the mechanic. The mechanic says, it's so broken that I can't fix it. She says, I'm going to... Uh, I guess I'm going to buy a new car. And I said, well, what range are you looking for? And she says, 2500 maybe 3000 It's all I can afford. That's with the 750 And I don't say this to her, but I step back and I think, 
now I'm beginning to understand how hard it is to crime out of poverty. Because this, this is, one, how, whatever your politics are about poverty, this is one of the, the good folk. She's trying like crazy. And I can see where this is going. A car that you paid $2,500 for will break again. And when the car breaks again, she'll lose her job. And when she loses her job, she won't be able to keep her apartment. And these two little boys are caught with her in this spiral down. Now, what would the wild goose be leading me into here? I don't know. I started the old way. I called some friends and tried to raise some money. And then through some conversations with the guys on Friday and some other things, I, I was checked. I, I, they pushed back and said, you know what, why don't you try something else? So I sent, I sent out an email to you in the body, and it was amazing what started to happen. One person said, I know somebody who looks for cars. Somebody else said, I can change motor oil. And, and there's something that's coming out of this. I don't know where it's going, but it feels like more of a dance to me. It feels like the wind is blowing. So what would it look like in your life this week if you danced instead of fought? What would it look like for you this week if you went on a wild goose chase instead of planned and prayed for a blessing on your plan? What would it look like for you this week if you shut down your little motor, hosted your sails, and just took off? Well, I'll end with this. Uh, Last week, um, as we were at the communion table, I had a picture that just kind of came into my head, and it's stuck with me all week long. I'm going to throw it out again. Um, The picture was this. It was of a ship that was in a fierce storm. Uh, and there was a, it was a guy in the image, and I've seen this image all week. And the guy was holding on to a leg of a table as the ship was being blown all over. And he was holding on for dear life. He looked like those weathermen on TV during hurricanes, which I never understand that. You know, why, why they're always, you know, just, you, you could get behind the car. We'd still believe you. But so he's, he's holding on there, and he's, he's just holding on for dear life, trying not to get blown off. And as I prayed about it, here's, here's what came to me, that what he doesn't realize is that the ship's sinking. And that the wind, the Spirit of God, is trying to blow him off of the ship somewhere else before it goes down, but he is holding on to what he knows. And if he won't let that let go, he's going to go down with the ship. So I don't know what that means to you. I think I know what it means for me. But what are you holding on to that's ultimately going to take you down? Let's pray.